Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much uh, for supporting uh, Sydney Ideas this evening. We're going to be talking about democracy. We're going to be talking about some alternative ways of imagining the way that our system is working. And before I start proceedings, I'd just like to make a few thank yous. Uh, tonight's event is a co-partnership involving the Graduate School of Government here at the University of Sydney, the New Democracy Foundation, uh, which facilitates and supports deliberative democracy uh, at local, state and national level uh, governments in Australia. And uh, I'm very thankful for the support that they've given to us this evening to organise this event. The way we uh, propose to proceed tonight is to have our very special guest, Emeritus Professor John Bernheim, to speak first. And then we will ask our two uh, visitors, uh, Dr Nicholas Gruen and Associate Professor Carolyn Hendricks to comment on uh, John's talk uh, and then we'll have a, a little bit of dialogue followed by an opportunity uh, for question and answer. But before we move on to the proceedings, I'd like to introduce you to our speakers this evening. Uh, we have Emeritus Professor John Bernheim John, a very distinguished Australian political philosopher. Uh, in one of his uh, uh, biographies, it was written that there were three parts to his life. One was as a Catholic priest, uh, and then following the church's response to Vatican II, John left the church and now is part of the secular humanist uh, tradition and was the professor of philosophy here at Sydney University. Since retiring, he's kept an active interest in uh, his, philosophical, um, his philosophical thought and he's published, along with Is Democracy Possible, way back in 1985, the Demarchi Manifesto last year. And, of course, uh, this manifesto, which is Sydney University Press, is available at the back of the, the hall. It's a great read. I certainly recommend it uh, to everyone that's here this evening. To talk about John's um, address to us, we have two uh, visitors. We have Carolyn Hendricks, the Associate Professor at the Australian National University. Carolyn has written extensively on democratic innovation uh, and sits on the research committee of the New Democracy Foundation, and I declare an interest, I chair uh, that particular research committee as well. She's interested in all aspects of democratic uh, innovation, uh, but in particular, I've been attracted to the work that she's done on the way parliamentary committees could really improve the way they engage the public in the work that they do. And she has publications in that area, uh, but also on the general range of democratic innovation. Nicholas Gruen, who's with us this evening, is the Chief Executive of Lateral Economics and I think is best described as a consultant, uh, a commentator, an advocate, an entrepreneur. Uh, a marvellous mix of, of elements. 
He's been recently writing on the subject of uh, our democracy, its weaknesses, and ways in which we might uh, energise our democracy uh, to uh, perform better from the public interest point of view. John has also acted as a consultant uh, to the Australian Government on a range of innovation questions. So with those uh, preliminary comments, I'd like to invite John uh, to, uh, to join me here and to outline his particular argument and then have our two guests to respond to John. So could you please uh, welcome uh, Emeritus Professor John Bernheim. Mm. Good evening and thanks for coming. Uh, thanks to, especially for, to uh, Jeff Gallup for arranging the whole thing, for Meredith Hall for putting the facilities at our disposal, to uh, Luca Belgiornetis and the uh, New Front Democracy Foundation for the, their sponsorship, to uh, Carolyn and Nicholas for coming respectively from Canberra and Melbourne and, uh, and also to Margaret, my wife. Um, Demarchy is a set of suggestions for improving uh, on some of the defects of current democracy. It's not a particular doctrine, but a set of responses to problems. Tonight I want to talk about one particular proposal, namely consolidating a tight relationship between public policy and public opinion. Quite generally, politicians uh, profess to consult and defer to public opinion. But what is public opinion is at present very much in dispute. In our present democracies, we uh, entrust the formulation and implementation of public policy to political parties. Uh, a political party is essentially a means of concentrating power. And the result is that proposals for public policy become enmeshed in the struggle for power. And I want to maintain that that is very dangerous. The public gets a look in 
at election time when it has to choose between two bundles of policies, many of which they don't want. Those bundles are the result of deals between factions, attempts to keep the supporters happy, and to extend the, the uh, vote. It's opportunistic. Now, this isn't the fault of politicians. I want to emphasize that it's the fault of the procedure we use Namely, voting may have its uses, but it's a very bad and dangerous way of deciding on policy. In many ways, voting is a last resort when we can't reach agreement. The ideal of a public policy is one that is bound up with the public good. And ideally, it ought to be generally accepted. The danger with, or if not a danger, a defect of uh, voting is that it conveys very little information and allows no interaction. Everybody vote is equal irrespective of the reasons behind it. But if we're looking for good policy, it's precisely the reasons why it is necessary that we must get hold of. So that Voting tends to treat public goods as though they were private goods. Each person has their own particular reason for wanting or not wanting something, irrespective of the value of that. If we're going to get an agreed policy and one that meets a variety of needs and views and hopes and fears, we have to have an interactive process. Public good must 
be good for the public. But they're not necessarily just one public. There are many that interact. And it's very important that that interaction be focused on a practical conclusion. So the question is how this is to be done. What I propose is something that was not possible for most of my lifetime until the ubiquitous spread of the World Wide Web. I'll come back to that. The aim, in one way, is to make popular participation crucial in the formation of policy so that without changing the present uh, constitution, we confront the politicians with what we want them to do. Is that possible? Before I go on to outlining my proposal, a few words more about public opinion. Uh, a stable and effective democracy is crucially dependent on an active public opinion. At the very minimum, it's absolutely necessary to ensure that government functions as it's supposed to function. But I think we need, in the present instance, to go much beyond that. Because we no longer live in a natural or traditional order, but in an extremely artificial one. And what is happening is that many of the things that we do that were perfectly okay on a small scale, on a large scale, have very threatening effects on the very viability of our whole system. Obvious example, of course, climate change. In the happy days when we thought we could just pump carbon dioxide into the air and it would all disappear, are completely gone. And the same applies to a number of other problems 
that we hardly address seriously at all at present because they're not part of the everyday um, concerns of people and so don't rise, arise in people looking for votes. But, but the world monetary system is producing an extraordinarily unbalanced distribution of wealth which potentially has very serious consequences. The continual increase in population threatens the whole of our ecology. The threat of nuclear war still hangs over us. Now, all of those things, of course, cannot be uh, solved on a domestic scale, but we must solve the problem of what we can do about them and about the leadership we can give on the international sphere. There was a time when Australia led the world in democratic procedures. Uh, our present um, voting arrangements used to be called the Australian ballot. It's now universal. We might make a big difference. In the classic liberal era, public opinion was formulated and almost enforced by uh, people who are called leaders of opinion. A sort of status that went with being a prominent spokesman for uh, an established institution, for a profession, uh, a major journal, and uh, people who are recognized as uh, public intellectuals. And uh, during the 19th and 20th and early 20th centuries, the establishment, as it came to be called, was a powerful force for uh, progress in political matters. However, as that progress included democracy, it undermined its own authority. With the advent of mass polling, an entirely different view of public opinion came in. It was no longer focused on what was right and proper as it were in matters of policy, but on 
voters' off-the-cuff reactions to the performance of, of politicians. The content was volatile, reactive, not at all constructed, not something that could guide politicians in um, legislating and administering. Public discussion is, of course, a very important uh, force in creating public opinion. And it is simply amazing how powerful it has been over the past century, or at least since the end of the Second World War. We've seen a complete reversal of the shape of our morality. People often think that merely as freeing up constraints, but it also has a constructive side. There are many ways in which the treatment of women, the treatment of children, and the treatment of the disadvantaged have been changed. People sometimes think that a public good must benefit everybody directly. That is simply untrue. A very good example, and one that illustrates the moral change that I was talking about, is provision for the disabled. When I was young, the disabled were perhaps pitied, but kept out of the way. No concessions were made. Now, with a positive view of providing as much participation as we can to them, for them, uh, in all the activities of life. Now, that benefits only directly only a very small number of people. It has some small benefit to all of us in, in as much as we never know when we might undergo a serious accident and be disabled permanently or for a substantial period. But above all, it is a, a, a public good because it's a community thing. The community being concerned that its members should flourish. Now, 
although public discussion does produce a lot of change, and very effectively, it's still not enough. If we are to get particular problems, particularly problems that have a very serious technical aspect, uh, uh, dealt with, uh, we need procedures. Everybody recognises that wherever uh, we need institutionalised decision, we need uh, procedures, whether it be scientists uh, planning a research program, a business, business-like is the old-fashioned word that I'd like to think of for the appropriate attitude. So, getting a practical conclusion is a very different sort of process from a theoretical discussion. We have to converge on trying to reconcile uh, contrary strains, uh, getting a connection to the particular problem that we're dealing with. Unfortunately, a lot of politics has in recent times been guided not by specific problems, but by ideological generalities against more taxation, against government or bureaucracy. Now, there are good reasons for being against those things, but to apply them, as it were, a priori to particular instances simply doesn't work. There's a very intriguing example of the way when somebody con concentrates on a particular problem, ideology goes out the window uh, Peter Costello, a week or so ago, proposed the nationalisation of the whole uh, superannuation industry. I'd like to know really what the reason behind that was, but there you are. Well, coming down to the practicalities. First, we need a major 
well-resourced foundation that advertises itself as conducting public, completely transparent, completely accessible discussions of major public policies. It sets up a particular website for each major problem that it identifies. Those websites will be run by professional editors. The, the foundation invites anybody and everybody who wants to make a submission to do so on the website. But the emphasis, the only thing that counts is the argument for a particular consideration. The number of people who support it and attempt to uh, put in websites is irrelevant. And uh, the editors will group submissions according to their content, uh, assign an identity to each one, particular number, okay. uh, cross-reference them so that it is possible for, uh, uh, for somebody to follow what, what is going on. What is the comment on what? It should be accessible to everybody, however great or small their resources. Um, many individuals who would like to make a submission will not have the skills to do it, but they can join with others, they can get advice and help from their nephews, uh, politics student perhaps, <laughs> um, and, and so on. The submissions will be, uh, be anonymous. You can't enforce that if people insist on betraying their identity, that's uh, inevitable. But the point is that nobody 
gets a say simply because of their standing, their claims to authority or something. Politicians can enter just as anybody else, lobbyists, think tanks, anything that contributes. It should be possible to uh, link up discussion so that various discussions of various points are gradually brought together. The, <coughs> um, the, the, the role of the editors in this, of course, is important. And obviously, their decisions must be as open for discussion as any other. The great virtue I see in the, uh, this procedure is that it allows enormous flexibility. We're always caught in the most proposals between people's desire to have their own say and people being represented very often by somebody they didn't choose. Now, people here can watch what's going on. They don't necessarily have to uh, make an entry if somebody else is doing the work. But if it turns out that they're on a slightly different wavelength, they can come into the discussion at any stage. So that it solves the problem between self-nomination and the weaknesses of all forms of representation. The question, of course, is, is it manageable? Um, a good deal would depend in the long run on whether people accept the idea that if somebody else is saying what they want to say, there's no point in complicating things by adding yet another submission that is only verbally different. So that, particularly 
a variety of different questions focused on different specific problems, we get used to the idea of leaving things to others to argue, but with the proviso that we can get in any time we want and get our point if we feel it's not being covered. In fact, in the modern world, we are, in most of our activities, completely dependent on relying on the decisions of other people. If we go to buy a car, we rely on all the checks and balances that uh, ensure that it's safe, reliable, and so on. In the modern world, there is hardly anything that we simply do for ourselves. What we do all the time is contribute to something particular in exchange for all the other things that we get. So that the proposal that I've outlined rejects the idea that everybody must make up their mind about all the decisions uh, that are up for uh, decision. In other words, you scrap compulsory voting, <laughs> but also scrap the idea that everybody has to be interested in every public th thing, public issue. I know so many people who are very serious citizens, very devoted to the public good in their own particular profession and so on, but just not interested in most political issues. They, they can't possibly be well informed about all of them. So that this proposal is designed to make it possible to be completely democratic in the sense that there is no obstacle whatever to people having their say, but it's not necessary for them to have a say, except in the things that they are actively interested in. Now, that, that sort of discussion I've outlined would, I believe, greatly clarify what are the relevant 
considerations in a particular matter, their relations to each other. But they will almost inevitably, in most cases, leave a certain indeterminacy. We may agree that such and such is relevant to an issue, but different people will put different weight on different considerations. So I, I propose a further step. Uh, a small citizen jury, statistically representative of the sort of people most affected by the decision, who are charged with trying to distill a particular practical proposal from the discussion. Uh, this, I believe, would help greatly for people to grasp what uh, is involved and appreciate it. And, of course, it would help pin down uh, what the politicians uh, are being asked to do. Such a, wouldn't be, such a decision wouldn't be unique, uh, but it might be, uh, have a certain salience Because when it comes down to practical uh, decisions, uh, we are inevitably gambling on risks, on the future, on ideas that we've neglected and so on. We have to look on any decision as an experiment. And uh, having that mentality rather than the dogmatic one, we can, even though we may not agree with a decision, go along with it in the hope that at least, if it fails, uh, we'll learn from that. So, going back to the formula on, that I put on the English edition of uh, the, uh, the Democratic uh, Manifesto, this should enlighten public opinion, make it more sophisticated. People are very unaware of the complexities of the issues involved very often. They think, oh, just why can't they get on with it and do it? 
if the public should be much more aware of uh, what is at stake. It should articulate public opinion and hopefully give it effect. Thank you. Thank you very much, and thanks to John. He's uh, 90 years of age, but it's fantastic to see his philosophical mind working to think through this tricky subject of public opinion and how we can make it a much more positive force in our society rather than the short-term negative force that it's tended to become. But look, we're very fortunate. We've got two guests with us this evening who are going to uh, comment on uh, John's paper, and then uh, we'll open it up for discussion. Our first guest is uh, Associate Professor Carolyn Hendricks, and I'd ask her to, to make some commentary on John's paper. Carolyn. Thanks very much, Jeff, and thanks to everyone for turning up here on a Monday night. Pleasure to be here, and thanks very much for, for John for sharing his, his work with us. It's been a real um, privilege for me to read both his talk and engage with his recent book. Um, and just to see how his, his ideas have evolved since the 1985 book on Is Democracy Possible? So there's obviously been a lot of work um, recently on, and commentary on, on ways for democratic reform. Um, for good reason, there's lots going on and it's become a really important topic, public topic, democratic reform. Many of us working in this area have struggled to get public interest in our work and it's, it's really getting to the point now there's a lot of examples where people are starting to ask how might we do things differently. And John's been thinking about these ideas for a long time um, and what I find particularly refreshing about John's latest book um, that's detailed here and there's copies at the back um, is that his entry point into democratic reform um, tackles a really obvious but too often neglected problem in contemporary politics and that's the failure of our decision makers to really discuss and devise really good public policy. I mean it's such an obvious task for them to do but I think it lies at the heart of a lot of citizen cynicism and distrust in politics today. And so John, John's recent book, it's really a, a welcoming starting point because as, as a political theorist, um, most political theorists aren't as willing as John to engage in the realm of public policy, actually. It's the sort of bottom end of the political science discipline. It's too often viewed as too rudimentary or, or messy. Um, but John, that's John's starting point. I think because he recognises for most of us, politics is fundamentally about public policy. It's about um, the taxes we pay, the services we receive, um, collective problems we face, um, how do we address inequalities. These are all problems that we collectively have to wrestle with um, and our current systems of representative government aren't, aren't able to, to address some of the big complex issues we're facing at the moment. So I think John's really onto something here because he's found a very practical way and meaningful way um, to spark public uh, interest in his democratic reform proposal. So there's been many other ideas to reform, uh, you know, 
democracy, but it's difficult to get public and popular interest. But look at this on a Monday night. So it's a credit to you, John. What I wanted to do in my time tonight was really offer some questions on John's proposals. I'm drawing here heavily on his, his book um, and, and the audience to reflect on some, some questions that I have here. The first question that I had was, I'm really curious why um, in your latest book, it seems like you've taken a more incremental approach than in your original um, 1985 Damaki book. And I was interested in, in what was the trigger for this more incremental approach. Um, some may argue that we're actually in a quite a crisis point in our democratic reform discussions, and yet you've moved to a, a sort of more, I guess, maybe slightly more pragmatic or incremental approach. So I'd be interested just to hear about your own reflections of that journey. The second question I had was really about, um, you know, many of us here have been working on democratic reform or democratic innovations um, for a while. And um, a lot of the empirical work, certainly on things like citizens' juries or deliberative polls, uh, they are demonstrating that they, they do influence some political outcomes, but, but many of them don't. Um, and so I guess the question I have is, many of these... Uh, democratic, democratic innovations or procedures, they're very, uh, they're one-offs. They often struggle to result in long-term sustained democratic reform. They may produce a moment of um, citizen enlightenment and, and they have profound impacts for the people involved and, and for some decision makers. But they um, are often at the pointy end of the policy decision-making process. Um, and so I'm sort of interested in, because your proposal seems to be more at the formulation end of public policy, putting issues on the agenda, um, I'm wondering if you think that there's more prospects here for long-lasting democratic reform. My third question is really about the politicians in this proposal. So in, in John's book, um, you know, one of the starting points is the, you know, the, the problem with parties and, and, and the politicians and the adversarial nature of um, political discussion. And I guess um, I sort of wondered when I was reading some parts of John's book whether he overstates the authority and power that our politicians currently have in a lot of addressing a lot of public policy issues we face. Um, so I guess for me, I see power in public policy being much more distributed across a whole range of state, non-state, and particularly corporate actors um, who are you know, variously tasked with designing and delivering public policy. So I guess for me, the politicians are just one of many players in this messy space. Um, I mean, the energy sector is a great example at the moment where you have electricity um, and, and discussions uh, where, where the politicians are in a relatively weak um, position in, in many, um, you know, particularly in the generation and distribution of electricity or even in the extraction of gas. Um, and you see this in the health policy sector as well. So they're sort of very much tied into the knowledge and, um, I guess, material uh, and capital that are, is available from these other actors. And so I'm wondering here um, whether we could bring politicians more actively into your proposal. Um, I guess because in my own research I've found that politicians actually often welcome procedures like citizens' juries, you know, and possibly this foundation you're talking about, because um, it enables them to step uh, aside from all these vocal interests that constantly um, pester them and have a lot of power over them. Um, so I just, I guess my question here is I'm wondering if there's a more active role for them 
to play in this process. For example, in the Irish Constitutional Convention recently, they had mixed membership where the randomly selected citizens deliberated together with um, elected members, MPs, and there were a lot of sceptics about this mixed membership and assumed that the citizens would be dominated by the, the, the politicians, but that actually wasn't realised in practice. Um, and it was quite a profound discussion between citizens and MPs having them in, in the same room together. And I'm wondering, you know, could, could parties or parliaments be made to report to this foundation as a way of building greater accountability um, you know, between express public opinion or informed express public opinion and their decision making. My fourth point is really about the role of emotion in public policy. And um, I think there's a really strong rationality argument in, in your proposal um, that good public deliberation entails reasoned, rational argumentation. Um, and this is central to a lot of the theory on deliberative democracy and, um, and I think most of us in the room will probably agree that we need to have you know, a good reason debate for effective public policy. But there have been a lot of objections to this idea of rational debate um, and its role in public deliberation, particularly by feminists but also difference democrats who have argued that not everyone reasons equally. Right? Men are better at reasoning than women. This is empirically founded. Men speak more than women in reasoned debate. Um, children don't get the chance to often reason. They have different ways of expressing their concerns. Um, and and you, you can see the inequality issues around this kind of form of political communication. So I'm just wondering in this proposal how, how the voices of those who don't reason well or cannot reason how they're represented in this in this um, foundation or even in the the mini public that's created. And I guess there's also this question about the role of emotion in our policy debates. Um, so some issues by their very nature are highly emotive. And I just am wondering where is the room for this emotion in this um, sort of highly rational, rational process? Um, Often when I'm teaching this sort of topic with my students, I talk about the power of the little children, a sacred report in federal parliament. You know, the voices of these children in that report was very profound. So how do we bring the voices of those who are affected by policy decisions into a process like this when they may not have the opportunity to speak for themselves? Finally, I've got two pragmatic questions. I guess in this um, council or the citizens jury you mentioned at the end of your talk, um, there's this notion of the affected public, so you pick randomly selected citizens um, to sit on this uh, panel to, to, to make a decision when there's a contestation over what the outcome should be. I guess I'm wondering who decides who this affected public is, because in many issues, I'm doing a project on coal seam gas politics at the moment, and there's many people who aren't directly affected by coal seam gas in these regional areas that I'm studying. But there's people on the other side of the planet that are contributing to that debate and they want to contribute to that debate because they're concerned about climate change. So the boundaries of who's affected are very slippery and I'm just wondering that whole process of determining who's affected is very, very contentious in itself. Um, and if for, for some issues uh, take us, you know, asbestos, we don't know for many years in advance who that affected public actually is. So I'm just wondering yeah, there's some questions around that, that whole process. 
And the, the final pragmatic question is really the role of interest groups and, and the mass media and indeed social media. So these are existing and sometimes very dysfunctional spaces of our democracy. They can feed our democracy in positive ways, but they, they have collective problem, action problems. And I'm wondering um, how we can protect this foundation you're talking about from some of the pathologies that those um, groups and you know, the, the pathologies that those, those institutions bring to, to democratic practice. So I might leave it there and pass it on to... I'll just uh, introduce Nick. Thank you very much, Carolyn. There's a huge amount of uh, issues that you've raised there, but one you raised I just wanted to mention, that if you go to the website of the New Democracy Foundation, uh, there's a very interesting section on research notes, and one of them deals with the French election. And Carolyn made a very interesting point about citizens uh, and, uh, and parliaments and politicians. Uh, now President Macron, not many people sort of know this, has actually recommended that in his report to the nation, which he's going to give, rather like the great report the American presidents give, he, he's arguing that they should report to two forums, one the parliament obviously, and another one a randomly selected group of citizens. Uh, and indeed, two of the other major candidates in the French presidential election, the left uh, candidate and one of the socialist candidates also made a case for um, making changes to the democratic system. But the Macron idea is something that we perhaps uh, might see happen in the future following, uh, I, I raise that following Carolyn's point. I'd now like to turn over to uh, Dr Nicholas Gruen to, uh, to make his comments. Nick. Thanks, Jeff. Um, well, look, I thought I might begin by likewise um, uh, saying what a, what a remarkable uh, contribution John has made. I, uh, I don't know, well I can remember roughly when it was, it was around about um, March of this year I got a little package in the, um, in the post and uh, in the package was a copy of the Namachi Manifesto and a man wrote to me and said, you seem to be saying some things which might give you an interest in this book, and uh, I'm 90, uh, so, uh, so I need some help here. Um, and, and I must say I was ref I've reflected very fondly on that because I had only recently started um, more publicly expressing my dismay at where democracy is at the moment and uh, some ideas about what we might do about it. And in the previous 30 years, I'd made similar comments about economics and public policy. And uh, you seem to get a little more feedback in this area than you do in economics. So uh, that's kind of nice. Uh, I, and I subsequently entered a, a fairly substantial email correspondence with John, uh, which uh, leads me to the conclusion that um, he's a, a considerably deeper thinker than I am. So, uh, uh, so, so I'm aware of the uh, possible shallowness of some of my concerns, or some of my some of the ways in which I think this. Or I'm aware of the ways in which my concerns about this are may not rise much above political punditry. So if someone comes along to you with Plato's Republic and you say, I don't think I can sell this to a focus group, that may not be 
the most powerful uh, intellectual contribution that you can make. But to me, it's viscerally important. And when I hear this idea for Demarchi argued, I think that it would, that, that you know, operatives like Andrew Bolt wouldn't even give it the time of day, wouldn't even bother to deal with it. Uh, another group of chattering people. The other thing I would say is that like a lot of thinking about politics and policy, a lot of my own thinking about policy because there's no way around it, but not so much with my thinking of politics, this is a proposal to persuade everybody else to get the policy apparatus to do something. And the New Democracy Foundation, who, is, who has helped this evening uh, come about, is likewise about the business of persuading the public uh, uh, or the government that a certain thing is a good thing to do. And I want to do something more direct than that. I never saw much change come from, other than from powerful people, come from people who turn up to the government or to the community and say, you should agree with this. I think change comes about when people simply assert the legitimacy of what they're doing. So I embrace something very similar to the New Democracy Foundation, which is the efficacy of the old Athenian idea of democracy, which is to go round up a bunch of people and ask them what they think and give them the resources to think rather than poke a microphone into their face as they're walking out of the supermarket and ask them what they think about the latest criminal conviction and sentence. And you see, this is very deep in our culture. It's in Magna Carta. It goes back to the Athenians. When you hear, I never heard a shock jock take on a jury. I only hear shock jocks take on judges, elite and so on, and all that kind of stuff. So for me, I want to start the ball rolling with deliberative democracy, things like citizen juries, as a form of activism. So to, give, to tell you what I mean by that, the, and, and perhaps I'll just to give you some uh, further background by way of introduction, in two th what, what was the greatest achievement of the last parliament that was dissolved going to the last election? Uh, Tony Abbott's parliament, if you like, or the parliament that Tony Abbott became prime minister in. It was to undo carbon pricing something which the Australian community had struggled with for maybe 15 years and had come to a painful bipartisan consensus on. And it turned out to be advantageous to the opposition of the day to say what a terrible thing this was in precisely the way that Paul Keating said what a terrible thing a GST would be five years after saying it was absolutely essential and if we didn't have it, we would be a second-rate economy. Um, now, imagine if at that period of time someone 
with enough money, and it wouldn't have to be a huge amount, had convened a citizen's chamber, a chamber of people that we all think of as like you and me, I think it would have looked at the cockamamie scheme the Liberal Party had going into that election, which wasn't really a policy to go anywhere in the next 10 years. It was a policy to get through a radio interview. They would have looked at that. They would have known, for instance, how many people in this audience know how much money the budget is losing every year from not having from abolishing carbon pricing. It, it runs to 11 figures. I think I'm right in saying 11 figures. It's over $10 billion a year. Um, and they would have thought about that because some, they would have asked for information about that. And I think that would have placed a great deal of pressure on politicians to, to actually engage with the kind of articulated public opinion that John has been so good as to point out, that public opinion used to be a, if you like, to use, uh, used to be a kind of a robust and thick kind of notion and is now a horribly anorectically thin idea of, you know, a tiny movement on a dial. And then we have some pundits talking about it for the next 40 minutes on a, on a Sunday afternoon, on a Sunday morning. So, so that's sort of where I'm coming from. And so I really very deeply agree with John's diagnosis. I think that the suggestion would not, I cannot see any way for the suggestion to acquire the sort of centrality to the political debate to be implemented. But if it were implemented, it would be very easy to ignore. Uh, and, uh, and the idea of Dimashi is a very interesting one. The idea of randomly selecting people who have an interest rather than randomly selecting people who don't have an interest is a, a, a very interesting and worthy one and certainly something I'd like to see develop more, but I don't want to go into political battle with it because I don't think it will take you anywhere. Um, let me just see if there are any other uh, notes that I want to put to you. Um, I guess the, um, the idea that reason would crystallise itself out of emotions on the internet struck me as a intriguing an intriguing one which I did some wrestling with in the noughties and um, it didn't seem to be so and it has become less so. So how we get that to happen, I'm not too sure. Um, the other thing is with an anonymity, I, I appreciate the idea and of course it can't be enforced and our whole culture is kind of the opposite of an anonymity culture. But, I, but speaking for myself, it is of great importance to me to, in sort of, if you like, rationing my attention and the seriousness that I am prepared to offer different ideas, to get a bit of a sense of who's proposing them. Um, I can't really imagine myself... I'm not really... I, I don't have enough 
I, I can't imagine myself taking an argument. I don't know what treating an argument on its merits quite is. It's the beginning of an inquiry, just like learning who's said it and why is also the beginning of an inquiry and one gradually tries to piece that together and one gradually goes with people who one trusts and who one thinks isn't just, aren't just saying that because they're paid to say that, which is what extraordinarily almost all the people we watch on TV are. Isn't it incredible that the ABC thinks that it'd be really good to inform us about coal seam gas to get on, to, to get someone in front of everyone to say that it's a good idea because they're paid to say it, and somebody else who doesn't want it to go ahead to say it's not a good idea. That's kind of it. I find that just unbelievably pathetic, <laughs> news values like that. Um, but there you are, that's, that's where we are, and that's the ABC, uh, and that's the, the very pinnacle uh, of, our, of our media culture. Um, how one makes the conversation in a, in a structure such as John has suggested convergent is a, is a difficult matter and not one that is, um, uh, it, and not one that we have spent much time coming to understand. Um, so let me, let me sort of conclude on a couple of points. Um, for me, I want to face those in power with an alternative that has compelling legitimacy, which can directly tackle their, what legitimacy they have. And they have undoubted legitimacy because they have power. Um, that's one of the reasons why I see such hope in uh, democracy by lot, the Athenian democracy, the, thought of the sort of thing that new democracy is fighting for because the Athenian democracy is the only democracy I know about, I know of ever in history that is what I call a jealous democracy, a democracy that is jealous of the people's power and that will fight for the people's power and knows that it is always at risk of attack from the oligarchs and from the people with power. And selection by lot is such a powerful mechanism to detox that possibility of the abuse of power and its effete 21st century equivalent, which is careerism, that we know. And I think if we can embrace it, we will find its generative power is very considerable. Um, so uh, thank you, John. I I uh, applaud what you're, uh, what, you're, what you're saying, what you've got, what you're getting at, and uh, also think that these other mechanisms are worth trying to think about. Thank you very much, Nicholas. Thank you. John, did you want to make a comment on, on, on the question? We've had a lot of questions, and I know that you're, you're hard of hearing, but uh, did you want to make it? No, no. Um, perhaps it might be better for people to. Okay, I, I'm. If you're if you're happy with that, 
What we'll do, I've been taking notes, we'll get some emails onto John and uh, we'll get plenty of responses that way, but let's have a conversation now about uh, some of these, these issues. There's lots out there. There's, I think Carolyn raised some very interesting questions about rationality and what does it mean to have a reasonable discussion when emotion's on the table and, and people bring their passions. I'm reminded when she said that, I told one of my friends, the late Senator John Wheeldon, that I was going into politics. He said, well, first rule of politics, he said, never assume rationality, which I thought was pretty good advice. That's one issue we might, might talk on. Uh, the other one is, obviously, John's formulation of independent creation of public opinion, acting with the authority of what he called the establishment of the past, but with the people's imprepature underneath it. So, who would like, anyone like to ask a question of our panel? Uh, thanks, John. Uh, thanks, panel. Uh, Pollies have a uh, great habit of circumventing due process, and the cost of that in lost opportunity, you mentioned a figure, uh, John's, uh, Nicholas, uh, and that's pretty significant. That's just one. Over the last 30 years, if you were to put a value on the lost opportunity values, it would be enormous. We've got super problem payouts anyway, but just to add, uh, how would you design, given that the political parties, the two major parties, hate and reject any threat to their current career positions, and that was magnificently displayed by rejecting uh, Fitzgerald's seven-point improvement. I mean, nothing's come of that. You've had Justice Michael McHugh uh, talking about uh, procedural fairness in a very clear way, which is also missing in part. The list is long and hard. Uh, you could go to the North Sydney Mayor if you wanted to listen for an hour to the abuses that the two major parties have pulled on the Australian public. So they're going to react very strongly to any attempt to form a foundation which seems like a great idea to create a force to combat the abuses, but they'll be in there like Flynn. I've led several groups in the last 30 years and I've always had to deal with plants from the two major parties. I've attended all the processes and they always get circumvented with faux, fake processes. Could you comment on how you might design the intake of the foundation? Carolyn and Nicholas, who'd like to go first? So just to clarify your question, you're, under, you're, you're wanting to know how does the foundation connect to the decision makers and how, how we keep the politicians accountable to that due process? Is that the question? Yeah, how do you make it effective? Because make it effective. It's initially, <laughs> but then you've got the problem of uh, devious uh, people uh, using yes. resources that they have that the public doesn't have. Yes, I mean, I'm only speaking here from what I can read in John, John's work, but my understanding is that by having the foundation separate from that whole, that, that power system, it enables a more considered public 
uh, input to, to be out there in the public realm. And that, separation is not sufficient. No, okay, no. So it's a separation in the first instance, but the more of these, these processes and the more public policy issues are discussed in these small councils, um, a culture, this is, I think, John's idea, that a, culture, a cultural change will, will, will take place where politicians cannot avoid this voice. So it's a bit like at the moment, I mean, it's a crass analogy, but Q&A, I mean, if, if a politician says no to Q&A, that doesn't look good. I mean, that's, a, that's not, nowhere near the quality of what John's putting forward. But there are um, public uh, discussion events that politicians now, I mean, it, kitchen cabinet, I mean, there are these sorts of media spaces where politicians feel they have to be engaged in. And I guess a cultural shift is what John is proposing, that over time, um, the public starts to expect that politicians have to be accountable to, like they can't just run around processes. I'm not sure if I've done justice there to your work there, John, but Carson, I'm not sure, or? Do you, do you want to say something? Uh, no, no, no. Okay. Nick. Um, yeah, I, I guess I think there is a, you, you want this, your concern goes to whether the process can be corrupted. Um, I'm not too worried about that, and I might say a bit about that in a minute, but, um, th there's also the question of whether it becomes unitary, in other words, whether it becomes the thing that everyone looks at. And I think it's very easy, if you've got a problem with this thing, recommending something that you don't want, to have lots of other discussions going on, and I don't see how you solve that problem. I do think that the election, the, the selection of citizens' juries is pretty robust to corruption of both the, you know, sort of criminal and more genteel form. Because it is, you, you, it is a mechanical process of randomising selection. And in this country, where there's lots of influence of politicians, we have a reasonably, uh, we have a fair bit of integrity in the voting mechanism. There are not many people in this room, I suspect, who think that there was widespread voter fraud, and that's because we have scrutineers from any party who wants the scrutineers standing behind the people who are counting the votes. And there is an opportunity at any stage to say this isn't being done properly, and that then it gets escalated to a judge or something like that, ultimately. So I think that it's possible to build so, so long as what you try and build has, is a mechanical thing like that with very well understood objective um, requirements, I think you can build it. Um, I think you could build what John is suggesting. I don't, I, my concern is how much influence it would have, certainly in the environment we are in now and how it could force its way into the public consciousness in a big way. Um, uh, but even over time, I think that's a, a real problem. I think the evidence from the Irish experience was where the two-thirds were randomly selected and the one-third came from the political parliament. That, that, that did work, and uh, as far as I, I understand the feedback from the Irish situation, both sides felt it was rather good having the other ones in there with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Question. Um, we, we had that in our in our parliament as well when we had what I call the randos in the centre, oh, and some of them were pretty good. We Go didn't to the expect back. them to be, but they were. Yeah. Go to the back first, and then over here. Yep. 
sorry, it's the man with the mic who has the power. I'm, I'm tempted to, to sing. Um, thank you, John, and um, thank you to Carolyn, and thank you to Nicholas um, as well. Um, it's actually quite refreshing to listen to such a civil and indeed, with all respect, quite a slow presentation. I'm a great one for public discourse and deliberation being just a little bit slower. And I speak as someone who spends their days teaching policy-making power and politics at this esteemed institution. And I've also spent a bit of time working at the centre of power here in New South Wales for nine years, and also working at 10 Downing Street for two years when I advised the then British Prime Minister on matters relating to sustainability and climate change. I don't have any direct questions, I just have some provocations and maybe a bit of a contribution to the thinking. I will read the book with interest. Firstly, power, power. Both John and Nick have spoken about power as if it is a commodity that some people have and some people don't, and this thing can be given away and distributed. Let's think deeply about the question of power. I'm a very big fan of the work of Stephen Lukes and his notion of the three faces of power. Quite a different view to the sort of view that it is something we either have or we don't. Secondly, politics without publics. Policy without publics. Policy that is enormously important, but very few people beyond specialists care about them. I give you one example, the manner in which water moves over landscape. It is enormously important for biodiversity and the air that we breathe. If we can de-channelize creeks in the Sydney Basin, we can do immense things for biodiversity. Very few people, beyond a few, even understand it or care about it, and getting democratic input to questions relating to it may not be the most important thing we need to consider. Thirdly, and I simply say care, care for processes that potentially only further a consumerist model of politics. Before we decide on anything, we must find out what it is people think and care about. And once we have found out what that is, then we will satiate and satisfy their demands. An example of that might be the current government's approach to energy policy. It is no longer about emissions reduction so much as it is about cost. Cost to business, cost to households. We know this because we have polling that proves it, care in relation to that. Fourthly, there, is, there has been mention of the media. Nick, thank you very much for your comments in relation to the ABC, which is the best of it, which is the best of it, but there are still enormous problems. Something that needs to be really considered in the manner in which we engage with the wider public in helping develop and consider policy. Most of the policy that we care about is mediated, is communicated to us through the media. It is not experienced. That places an enormous amount of importance on the role of the media. I don't think we consider any of these things without thinking about that. And fifthly, I think 
One way to bring a thesis alive often is like what? Like where? And I think in terms of some of the criticisms that we can all highlight about the current systems, there are nonetheless examples that we can draw on that point to very interesting, very creative, very positive ways in which people have been properly engaged in policy development. I give you two examples from hereabouts. Late 1990s, 1998, the New South Wales Drug Summit, involving expertise, people who cared from right the way across the spectrum at Parliament House for two days, truly involving the wider public in a very, very challenging area of policy, resulted in decisions that otherwise would have been impossible to justify and defend. And as Jeff knows, that gave rise to a medically supervised injecting room, which has helped alleviate the suffering for many thousands of people in this city since then. What a wonderful example. I've got another example, but I think, I think I've spoken might... enough, yes. so I will stop. Would you like to, to comment on Nicholas's point and then over here for the next yep. Okay. Yeah. I, I was thinking about a lot of things while you were talking and listening as well. Um, I'm just wondering whether the whole situation we've been talking about might be improved if we paid attention with education, perhaps in high school, to having people um, learn to study all sides of problems and not just accept what, what their father's policies might be. I mean, have, 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 have it really celebrated in schools as studying, studying ideas and what can be done about it and not just blindly going into some course from which they may never change. Now, now I noticed at Macquarie University a long time ago, for instance, from one particular country I won't name, fully 90% of the students studied accountancy. Now, I know there were other people from that community that were doctors and lawyers and so on and other things, but, but that showed a, a terrible sameness of th thought and perhaps, perhaps a, a little yep. a lack of faith in the community to change things. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Critical thinking, Nicholas? Would you like to comment on that? Uh, well, I was... I was uh, OK, go for it, yeah. So I will, I, I want to, I'll just make a couple of comments. Um, the drugs example you give I think is a very good one and, and the situation there is in many ways what this is, is it's a crisis of legitimation. So at the very top of the system you have uh, sound bites. Sound bites are things like should we be tough on crime? Should we blame or should we blame the victim? Stuff like we shouldn't blame the victim is the, the sort of so the right says we should be tough on crime and the left says we shouldn't blame we shouldn't blame the victim. Um, and the getting to understanding the problems and trying to move towards solutions um, actually has a lot more to do with you, you're much better at that when you're much closer to the bottom of the system, not at the top of the system. So there's lots of people who have good ideas about what to do at the bottom of these systems and, and so on, but they'll, they'll always, firstly they're bossed around by, in bureaucracies, which, and the bureaucracies are run by sound bites, but then 
if the bureaucracy, but then this whole system itself is run by another, has political masters. And, you know, Jeff might, Jeff has, having been a practitioner, knows. Jeff will know, uh, if I'm right, that a lot of the, the sort of thing that we're doing in the New South Wales Drug Court makes a lot of sense, is cheaper, more effective, and so on. I, I think that could do with a, a bunch of improvements as well. Um, but it's very tough to go on radio and say to Alan Jones, what you, this person says, this person robbed a house, led to an, the assault of someone who's still in hospital and they've been inside for six months and now you're letting them out for, for one of these programs. And it just takes you a long time to explain that's actually not no beer and Skittles in the New South Wales Drug Court. You can listen to four hours of fantastic ABC radio on that. If you want to send me an email, I'll point you to it made by Sharon Davies, absolutely riveting stuff. Um, but, it, you, you know, no one cares, as my daughter always says to me, Dad, no one cares. Um, which is cut through, Dad, get it over in three or four words, because after that, people have got Facebook feeds to be getting on with. Um, so, so this is a huge, huge problem, and, it is why, and that's why um, it's very important to see this as about the cognitive division of labour. Something that John said that is very rarely said and which I absolutely endorse and something that Australia might be able to make a contribution to the world in, which is that, again, in the words of my daughter, it's not all about you. In other words, it's stupid for us to have a view on everything. It's just damn stupid. We can have respect for the publicness of so many, many things. We can have a particular interest in some areas. And then we need a sense of le the legitimacy of the other decisions that are made. Uh, the sense that, well, look, I don't know what happened in that murder case, but 12 out of 12 people thought the guy was guilty. That, maybe he's not, but I can't do better than that. Uh, and we don't have that. That has been systematically unpicked for us and we're very suspicious of that and that's the beauty of a citizen's jury type of mechanism. It is generative of precisely the culture. It's not just an embodiment, it's not just that idea that brings it about but once it's brought it about it is generative of its own power and its own legitimacy. So that's one of the things that I think is very important. One thing that nobody's talked about is emotion other than you, and I wanted to take you up on that. And I want to read you something, uh, I want to read you a less than a full sentence, uh, uh, one thing that somebody said, and this is, this is what he said. It was quite a joy to hold the little kids' hands and watch them smile. Does anyone know what, what that refers to? That's Naval Commander Norman Banks. And that's the same incident that led John Howard to say, we decide who comes here and the terms on which they come, speaking of emotion. And we have a political system that has privileged those aggressive and masculine emotions, as important as they are, and completely marginalised the other emotions. And what happens in a citizen's jury is that 
People don't go to a, but they, actually when they first go to a citizen's jury, their expectations are very low because the association in their own mind is politics. And what do you think of politics? You think of fighting, you think of people trying to beat one another. And they get into it. And the logic of a citizen's jury is what I call unitary rather than competitive. You don't compete to get into one. The only way you can be a politician in this system is to beat another politician and then to demonstrate your prowess for, to support your team beating the other team. And in a citizen's jury, the logic is supportive of emotions of solidarity, of care, and all those things. And we can have too many of those uh, emotions. It's just that we have almost none of them. And that's why I think that that's why I think this kind of way of doing democracy can be so powerful, again, at the level of emotion, which is where we actually make decisions. I think we'll give Carolyn the, the, the last word. I, I apologise, we've gone a little bit over time here, but would you like to comment I have a very quick comment on, which relates to John's work again, about um, the comment at the back was about the, the care. We, we just want to know what people care about and then we'll make policies. Um, I mean, I think John's proposal is really trying to undo this, what you call consumerist politics, which is just about tapping people on the shoulder and saying, what do you think? You know, tell us what you think, quickly. You know, you're in the middle of shopping, tell us about climate change. You know, it's, it's completely misplaced. People don't have a chance to talk about issues, get informed. And I think John's proposal and indeed the work of New Democracy really tries to uh, accept that if we want good public policy, we need good information, we need consideration, we need time, we need slow discussion, we need critical thinking. And these are all elements at the heart of John's proposal. So I think he's, he's getting at the question you're asking out there. Thank you very much. It reminds me of the Buddhist uh, three questions. What is the most important time now, because there's no other time? Who is the most important person, the person you are with? And that might be you, because you're on your own. And what is the most important thing to do? To care. And uh, I think that was a, an excellent contribution. Ladies and gentlemen, my thanks to uh, Luca Belgiorno Netis and New Democracy for helping organise tonight, to Meredith Hall, as always, Sydney Ideas, always does a great job. Thank you very much. A special thanks to Carolyn and Nicholas for joining with us tonight. And a very special thanks uh, to uh, John. You know, he, he's really, when we look at political science, political philosophy internationally, his books are right up there. His thinking is right up there. Uh, do buy a copy. It's a wonderful book to read. The clarity of expression is, is marvellous. And the ideas within it, I think, are challenging just as we need that sort of challenge in our current society. So thank you very much for coming this evening and uh, all of us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.